Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Nature nerds, here we are with another episode of You're Gonna Die Out There. Hello. I'm uh, Jen, sitting across from my lovely co-host Megan. Yes, yes. Um, she will be sh- telling us an amazing story today. I will be. And I have some non-sciencey science news for us. I'm stoked on that. Let's hear it. Do we have any announcements? I don't think we do. We? Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, always I think about it after. I'm like, oh, we had this thing we're going to talk about on the podcast. It's totally gone now. It's gone. But hey, we love you. I, I do want to say something. Yes. Can I say something? You, you can. Can I get a little mushy right now? You're allowed. I want to talk about how our listeners are really nice people. They're really great. And they're funny. This is true. And I just, all the <laughs> overwhelming support mm-hmm. we received while mm-hmm. you were gone. Yes. Um, you guys, I had to really do my best to keep up with the social media during that time. So I hope <laughs> you enjoyed it. The month of July was, it Hectic? was like gen time. Yeah, I you know I put a bunch of posts and things, but yeah, you guys send us messages and funny stuff. I just you guys are great. Yes, just thank you so much. The best. Thanks for listening. Thanks for asking other people to listen to us. Which what I know, but we love you. You That's it. That's my announcement. That was great, Jen. Mm. So warm and fuzzy. It is, and you know what? So is my science news. Oh. Because as we talked about last week, Mm -hmm. everything's just gloom and doom. It's drought. (laughs) It's like scientific publications about birds, feathers changing colors due to climate change, like forests are shifting, animals, habitats are shifting. It's just all not good. Yeah. Like I literally can't find anything that I feel good about telling you guys Mm -hmm. that that would make us feel like there's hope. Right. So instead, I'm going to talk about Bandit, 20 pound calico cat. I already love him. It's a herc. Oh, no. It's a calico. <laughs> That's right. Although we know. Yes, there are some. There's there a very small percentage of that are males. But Bandit, having the name Bandit, is, is a lady. That's pretty great. Lady cat with all of her 20 pounds. She saved her uh, roommate, <laughs> a retired uh, Fred Everett, who lives in Mississippi, mm-hmm. saved him from a robbery. Oh. She did the damn thing. So it's from ABC News. I love it. And it says a guard cat named Bandit helped stop an armed robbery at the home of a Mississippi man. And there's a picture of them. And it's so cute. Let me show you. Okay, I'm in love with everybody in that picture. Yes. So, yeah, there's a picture of Fred sitting with Bandit. And it says Fred Everett is all smiles after his cat Bandit alerted him in the middle of the night to two men that were trying to break into the back door of his home. So this is from August 3rd. And it's in Belden, Mississippi. And it says that Fred said, you hear of guard dogs, but this is a guard cat. (laughs) The attempted robbery occurred sometime between 2.30 and 3 a.m. on July 25th. Um, He was first awoken by bandits meows in the kitchen. And then she raced into the bedroom, jumped on the bed and began pulling the comforter off of him and clawing at his arms. She was like 
Get the F out of here right now. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with how calicos are, how they sound. They're very talkative. They're very talkative, yeah. Yeah, and I just can imagine this whole... And she's 20 pounds. I mean, that's that's, that's a good size calico right there. I have an 18-pound tuxedo, and he's hefty. Yeah, that's a hefty cat right there. So when they jump on you and start pulling off your blankets, mm-hmm. it's yeah, there's something. And so he uh, yeah, obviously, he knew something was wrong. And he said, she had never done that before. I went, what in the world is wrong with you? (laughs) What in the world? (laughs) So Everett got up to investigate and saw two young men outside his back door. And one had a handgun. And the other was using a crowbar trying to pry the door open. No. And so Everett was like, well, I'm getting my gun. So he went and got his gun because he lives by himself. Yeah. Right. And he went back to the kitchen and the intruders had already left. So I don't know if he turned on a light or... They you were know, spooked by something. They got spooked, um, maybe by Bandit. Well, I'm, I was just about to say, maybe Bandit just went out there all like... <laughs> so apparently he didn't call the police. So I'm not sure how the newspaper knew about it, but maybe eventually he did report it. Bandit called the police. <laughs> Bandit was all like with her little paw. <laughs> She's like, 911. <laughs> um, so he said it would have been a whole different situation without Bandit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did not turn into a confrontational situation. Thank goodness, he said. But I think it's only because of the cat. And so Everett adopted Bandit from the Tupelo Lee Humane Society four years ago. Oh, I just love that. Tupelo? Tupelo. What did I say? Tupelo. Tupelo. Sorry, I'm not. <laughs> I love it. No, I'm not from great. that area. You know what? That's nice. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. So there. There's a warm fuzzy for you. Well, and I love it because it's a cat science news. It Well, it's not even a it's science, science news, news. But it's, it's just... not. A, but, you know. <laughs> cat behavior. People always give cats a hard time. They do. But look. Yeah. And you could look at it scientifically as some behavior. They tell you Protective what's up. behavior. Yeah. You know what? The, she was like, those guys are going to take my cat food. That's not going to happen. Fred, <laughs> Listen, get up now. I've been living a good life for like four <laughs> years. She's like, I come from the school of hard knocks. I've been in the streets or mm-hmm. whatever. Who knows? But, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. she was at the Humane Society. She might have been in she the streets. She was staring death in the face. For sure. And Fred saved her. And now she saved him. There we go. I love it. They saved each other. Right? That's a nice story. Yeah. Makes me want to get a calico. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it, Megan. No more cats. (laughs) All right. Well, that was a very nice uh, newsy there, Jen. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Um, Are you ready for a little story today? I am. I'm so ready. Man, I'm I'm realizing something about the stories that I've been picking lately. And they are, most of them are like very survival-y. Yes. And like less nature-y. Yeah. I mean, still nature. You do. You you do those. You do them well. But I really like them. Yeah. A lot. Okay. So I don't know why. I just do. I'm into it. So today, Jen, uh-huh. we're going to talk about the Mount Everest disaster of 1996. Oh. Have you heard of it? Yes. It, yes. Is, it is a very popular story. Yeah. Um, I actually had never... I mean, I kind of knew about it. I remember I was 16. Mm-hmm. I remember when it happened, but I don't... I never really knew the details of the story. Is this the one where some people lose some noses and such? Oh, for sure. And then they have to make a new nose. They put it on the forehead and then pulled it down. Yeah, because he I was remember, on Oprah. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Well, yeah. So that's who actually we're going to we're gonna talk a little bit about him today. I didn't miss an Oprah back in the day. Oh. Let me tell you. <laughs> Oprah. All right. So let's do some you know, like general facts about Mount Everest. I don't know that we've done a Mount Everest story. We did talk about the Seven Summits in the story oh. uh, about... I cannot remember his name off the top of my head. That was a that was a bonus episode. Yes, a bonus episode that we did early on. Uh-huh. Yeah. But this is going to be about Everest. Okay. So um, Everest is on the border of Nepal and Tibet. 
and on the high southern lip of the Qinghai Tibet Plateau. I probably said that really wrong. Uh, and then this area is called the Roof of the World, which makes sense. Right. Because it is the world's highest mountain. It, it's not technically, I think... It's the highest mountain above sea level, but it's not the highest mountain. Mauna Kea is the yeah. highest mountain from base to top, but half of it, you know, part of it's did under I the ocean. Did talk about that when we were talking about the wonders of the world? I think we the, did. The yes. natural wonders of the yes. world. Because we were talking about the Grand Canyon. And then we talked about how Mount Lam Lam here in Guam, mm-hmm. I mean, would technically. Yeah, but it's all underwater. Right. Yeah. So anyway, moving on. Not surprisingly, it is one of the deadliest mountains in the world. Uh, in Tibet, Mount Everest is called, and I'm going to really mess this up, I'm so sorry, Cho-Molungma, which means Mother of the Earth. And in Nepalese, it's called Sagar, Sagar Matha, which means God of the Sky. And then in Western countries, it was named after George Everest, uh, director of the British Surveyor General of India, who was responsible su- for surveying the Himalayas in the 19th century. I'm like, all these like indigenous And that's areas, the one that's like Right. And then the, just... It's like the AT&T Center, you know, like how they <laughs> renamed all these like stadiums after like Coke uh-huh. or whatever. I, yeah, but I'm sure locally it's not called that. Well, yeah. No, no. Yeah. yeah. They use their own the, name, the, the real, real name. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know that Mount Everest grows 40 centimeters per century? Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. It That's grows. It grows. Because it eats people. <laughs> it's people. <laughs> it feeds uh, on the lives. That people. is morbid. <laughs> Uh, in 1924, explorer Noel Odell was the first to discover marine fossils on Mount Everest. And that proved that Mount Everest area was originally covered by the ocean. And the limestone and sandstone that are on the summit were found to be submarine sedimentary rocks formed approximately 450 million years ago. However, geologists consider that Everest has only been a mountain for about 60 million years. That is since the Indian plate started being subducted by the Eurasian plate forming the Himalayas. Only 60 million? It's, it's only 60 it's like million years. It's honestly. a baby mountain. Is it even a mountain? Just <laughs> it's a toddler. Um, <laughs> Mount Everest was first climbed. And I think we talked about this in our Patreon episode. Uh, first climbed on May 29th, 1953 by Sir Edmund Hillary from New Zealand and Tazing Norgay, a Sherpa from Nepal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kami Rita Sherpa is the is the person who climbed, has climbed Mount Everest the most times. He's reached the summit. He did that for the 24th time on May 21st, 2019. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, there is a two o'clock rule when you're climbing Mount Everest, meaning that because of all the inclement weather, the cold, be sure to leave the summit by 2 p.m. This is kind of an important part of our story today. If you don't, you're going to be caught in what's called the death zone, and you're going to be short of actually the camp that you need to be at before the light goes down and falling temperatures, you know, subject you to things like hypothermia. Stay out of that death zone. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Everyone who climbs Everest has to pay a licensing fee to the the Nepal government. It is, as of 2021, $11,000 U.S. (gasps) per person. And that's to climb the south face of Everest. $11,000? $11,000. The Ministry of Tourism reported collecting, this is from 2018, this number, okay. uh, reported collecting $5.2 million in fees. So it is a money maker. Wow. Also, yeah. it like weeds out a lot of people. I, I, would, I guess so you would not have as many 
yeah people but you're making some money making a lot of money yeah. holy crap um tibet everest base camp trek costs a tenth of the price uh and all oxygen equipment supplies and guide services are included so on one side nepal side mm-hmm. it's super expensive on the tibet side it's a tenth of that okay so you're looking at a thousand bucks Sure. Yeah. About. And then uh, a lot of uh, everything that you would pay for extra on the Nepal side is included. So extra oxygen, equipment, supplies. So then why would anybody want to go to the Nepal side? I think it's a better I think it's the better side. I don't really know for sure. Probably. I don't know. Either way, you're going to the summit, right? I did read a little bit about the different like ways you can get up to the top, but Uh we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Okay. Uh, on average, an Everest climber will use seven bottles of oxygen on the way up and down, and each bottle lasts about five hours. So just keep that in your brain. Okay. Uh, fun fact. Yes. Tons of human poop is frozen on Mount Everest. Ew. Campaigners for a cleaner Everest estimate that about 8,000 kilograms of human feces have been left on Everest per year at an average of 800 climbers per year. That's 10 kilograms each. And it is getting to be a serious environmental and health concern. Feces does not decompose in the permanently frozen higher altitudes. And climbers are required to carry their feces off the mountain now. Think about that. Well, if it's frozen, I'm co- I mean, I'd be cool with that. Sure. I'm going to carry some like mushy poops. But still. <laughs> but um, still leaving it up there. Ew. Yeah. And there's nothing, with nothing to eat it. Nope. It doesn't decompose. It's too cold. Yeah. There's no specific place for using a toilet on Mount Everest above the lowest base camp. So camp, basically base camp, then camp two, three, four, and then the summit, right? Mm -hmm. So um, climbers pee and poop in their tents if they can. Frozen ground can't be like dug up, so you can't make latrines. And the risk of exposure or frostbite on your your downstairs parts Mm -hmm. uh, means that probably you shouldn't be going outside to use the bathroom. Like you're going to want to stay in your tent. To do the oh. deed. Yeah. Wow. Never would have even thought about that. I actually, every time I hear about these kind of like alpinist stories where people are going on like long journeys up uh-huh. a very large mountainside, especially Everest, I always think about how are they going to the bathroom? Yeah. Do you just like not go to the bathroom? You got to. I mean, you have to. Well, I wonder if they like go out to poo and they can't find a spot because there's just like poop everywhere. <laughs> I'm like, are you putting your tent down just like so, you're trying to avoid piles of poop? Just so much poop. <laughs> it's everywhere. <laughs> shit all over the place. Yeah. All right. So some climbers do carry waste bags and pee bottles for them to use in their camps and some wear diapers, Jen. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, actually, that's not a bad idea. Nope. That's nope. just like one more layer of insulation, honestly. Listen, we spent like the first like two years of our lives wearing them. It's fine. So we're going to spend the last few years of our lives if we're old <laughs> enough wearing them. So might as well. Might as well just do it. Right? Yep. It's for the environment. Yeah. I'm wearing this diaper for the environment. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, Helicopters cannot fly to the top of Mount Everest in case you were thinking, like, I'm just going to skip all of that, having to carry my poop everywhere. I'm just going to get on a helicopter and they'll just drop me off at the top. Uh That's not going to happen. Generally speaking, a helicopter can fly up to altitudes of 5000 meters and higher places like Everest Summit. The low density of air means that the propellers can no longer achieve lift. And I did not know that was, I always thought it was just weather, Oh, but I guess it just, there's not enough for them to be pushing off of. Uh I guess the air is so thin. I don't know. So air evacuation is not possible for those who are high up on Everest. I think the lowest camp they can go to is like, it's either the second or third camp that they can actually get to. 
Fun fact, jumping spiders are the only animals permanently based on Mount Everest at an altitude of 6,700 meters. That's 22,000 feet. Jumping spiders hide in nooks and crevices on the slopes of Everest, making them one of the Earth's highest permanent residents. Oh, cute. I love when they're spiders. They're cute. I'm sure they're spiders. Just really cold. <laughs> Just, they're what really are they? fluffy. The I thing bet. is, but like they're the only things living up there. What are they eating? Poop. <laughs> Just a lot of poop. They're poop spiders. There's got to uh, be something like something living up there. Right. Maybe they like go down. They just like live up there. They just go down no. a few thousand feet and get some stuff and go that back That seems up. like a lot of work. It does. Yeah. Uh, below the altitude of 6,000 meters, animals such as the snow leopard, Himalayan tar, which is a goat-like species, and Himalayan yak can be found. There are 17 different routes to the summit, but most everybody uses one of two routes. So mm-hmm. there's the Nepal Southeast Ridge. Um, this is a line that was created by Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary in 1953. And then on the Tibet side, there's the North Ridge. And this is where George Mallory disappeared in 1924 before a Chinese team finally completed that climb in 1960. In the 1990s, Everest got super popular because technology got better. Mm-hmm. And so people would have better, you know, insulated suits, oxygen, masks, you know, GPS, that kind of stuff going up. And that that actually opened the way for more commercial traffic up the mountain. So that's when you started getting like a lot of tours. Right, right. Of semi-inexperienced or at least not as experienced hikers. Right, not the climbers. elite climbers. Correct. In 2018, the Nepal Ministry of Tourism issued, issued 347 individual climbing permits to foreign climbers and reports that 261 of them summited along with 302 high altitude workers, which is kind of what they're called now. We'll talk a little bit about what Sherpas are and the difference, but now they're kind of called high altitude workers, people who help other people get up the mountain. Mm -hmm. On the north side of the mountain, there are estimates that an additional 239 people reached the summit in 2018. If you are going to purchase a tour, it can be anywhere from $40,000 to $100,000 depending on the level of service. So that's on the Nepal side, right? That's a lot. I mean, it's a lot. I mean, I guess you're paying for all these people, right? Sure. So, but for a typical three to four month Everest expedition, most Sherpas or high altitude workers earn $2,500 or $5,000. So you have someone... There's a pretty big gap there. There's a big, that's kind of a big gap. Yeah. I mean, you have more Sherpas than probably people who are going up in the tour, but you also have guides. So mm-hmm. guides and Sherpas are usually different. Guides are usually like alpinists, like experienced, mm, usually from like Australia, New Zealand, America, mm-hmm. Europe. Right. Russia. Yeah. Right. Which is like a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So the name Sherpa refers to the Tibetan tribe or ethnic group who settled in the Himalayas and have historically been the guides up the mountains. They actually have unique physical characteristics because they've lived in such thin air conditions. Uh, One is increased hemoglobin production and the other is doubled nitric oxide production. So they can breathe much easier Mm -hmm. and work easier in those high altitude um, areas. And they can also summit Everest without oxygen. A lot of them. Most of them. Yeah. Which is impressive. They're just... Built for it. Built for it, yeah. Yeah. Why don't, well, so there's not any Tibetan or Nepalese guides? I no. am assuming that there would be some, but in this story, none of the guides are mm. Tibetan or Nepalese. They're not Sherpas. All of the Sherpas were like assisting or working on the mountain, but not actually guiding people mm-hmm. up the mountain. 
Okay. And I'm not sure if that's changed a lot. Mm -hmm. I would hope so since 1996. But I don't know if it's like a language barrier or or what, like why they wouldn't be the ones to be the tour guides. Right. Mm -hmm. Somebody let us know. Yeah, I want to know why. Interesting. So a lot of Sherpas packs will weigh more than five times as much as ordinary climbers packs. So they are carrying a lot. I mean, literally, this industry is on the backs of this group of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Sherpas are groups of high altitude mountain workers work together each spring to prepare the route with fixed ropes and ladders. They stock all the camps going up. Uh, They put things like tents, stoves, bottled oxygen, food, and then they will coach people up. So they will help the tour guides to get everybody up to the summit and back down. They also do a lot of the rescue work. I bet. Mm -hmm. So there is this um, Kumbu Climbing Center that I read a little bit about. They've been doing, I guess, putting more funding into training and certifications to get Sherpas and the um, high altitude mountain workers, I guess, whatever certifications they need to be able to meet international standards of being guide. So maybe that is what's happening now. Hmm. Okay. All right. The best weather for reaching the top of Everest typically arrives in the second half of May, but preparations for a successful ascent begin many, many months beforehand. First, teams will assemble at Kathmandu in late March, and then they'll begin their acclimatization. Acclimatization? Mm-hmm. I think I'm saying that word. They're, they're just acclimbing. Acclimbing? <laughs> Acclimating. Thank you. That's the There's word. Jen stepping in with the words. Acclimation. There we go. <laughs> um, in April, climbers make several overnight forays or rotations that's what they call it in uh, like Everest language, mm-hmm. to successively hire camps up the mountain to, again, acclimate. Right. And then at this time is usually in April when the first teams of Nepalese guides will go up to the summit. So while people are kind of preparing, the the Sherpas or the high altitude workers are going up, setting all the ropes, doing all the things, prepping everything for everybody else's journey later. Right. Which blows my mind. Right. It's like all these people. They're like, we're just going to stay here. We're like, can barely breathe. <laughs> we're going to acclimate. And they're just like, OK, we're going to go set. We're going to go set up this trail for you guys. Yeah. Deuces. Be, be right back. Yeah. They're just like these poor people. Yeah. I bet like, seriously, they must just be like. These poor humans from other places that are just so inept. They just cannot. They can't even breathe. I don't know. Right? No. By the second week in May, these guide teams have hoped to establish a trail of several miles of the fixed ropes leading from base camp to the summit. And then, like I said, they're stocking all of those camps. And then prior to the actual summit for those climbers, some of the teams will actually go off of the mountain and they'll spend a couple nights at lower elevation. And apparently this helps with like recovery right before they're going to go up to this. I guess they're trying to get as strong as possible before they do the actual summit. They're like doing the whole like Rocky montage, you know, when like he was (laughs) prepping in the snow to go fight. um, Yes. The The Russian Russian guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're just drinking eggs. (laughs) They're <laughs> just drinking eggs. They're like running in the snow. I mean, probably if you eat more protein, that's going to be cleaner poops. Maybe. And then they get to the top of like a shorter peak and they're like, yeah. And it's like the music. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's what I'm picturing. <laughs> that's exactly. Exactly yeah. what's happening. Um, the summit push normally takes place over an arduous four to five days round trip from base camp. And if everything goes according to plan, 
mm-hmm. which does everything ever go according to plan? Totally. Uh, most Everest climbers are done with the mountain and on their way home by the beginning of June. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. So easy. Yeah. Um, hey, the death rate oh, okay. now mm-hmm. is approximately 1.2%, which you'd be like, okay, that's climbing low. a mountain, that's kind of low, actually, right? Uh-huh. Meaning that if you try to climb Everest, you're going to have about a one in 100 chance of dying along the way. Uh-huh. So still pretty. Still not. Yeah, not, I'm not really into those odds, but OK. <laughs> but from 1923 to 1999, do you want to guess what the death rate was? Wait, 1923 to 1999. Yeah, because there's more people. Death Less rate. technology. OK, what? It's 14.5 percent. So in the 2000s, basically, is when it dropped to that 1.2. They have more technology. <laughs> Better helicopters? Better, like, what's happening? better preparedness. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the actual summit is a small dome of snow. It's about the size of a dining room table. Yeah. And that's on, it? That's it. That's it. You go to the top, the very tippy tippy top, because it's kind of like a three-sided triangle. You know what I mean? Like uh-huh. it's like a, yeah. And at the very top is just like this pile of snow. It's very small. Very small. Only like, I don't know, six... To 12 people maybe could fit up there. That's what I was reading. Half a dozen. Six. Wow. There you go. That would be six. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, and on busy summit days, which happen, you have to wait in line for your turn to go to the summit. Not like that. No. Not like that at all. Mm-mm. It makes me think of all those TikTok videos where they're like, oh, this is the Instagram versus reality, where they like show people in Utah, like walking down this like secluded path. And you're like, wow, that's so cool. But actually, in reality, there's like hundreds of people yeah. who all came to that one. It's when attraction. they use the music, that's just the the little. Yeah. Yes, exactly. We spend too much time on TikTok. The last new route to be climbed on the mountain was accomplished by a team of hardy Russians in 2004. Hardy? Hardy Russians. Come on. <laughs> I forget where I pulled this <laughs> quote from. It was uh, it was like everything is, you know, all of my like show notes. It's a and lot stuff, of adjectives. It was, it was really great. I enjoyed okay. reading this Flowery. one. I think it was like a China tourism site or something. Oh, like yeah. That. So they had, to, they had to make it sound yeah. more hardy. Yeah. But. There are still areas on Everest that have never been explored because you just cannot get to them. Alpinist and National Geographic photographer Corey Richards says Everest is in many ways still a blank canvas. It's still as high, cold and formidable as it ever was. How one chooses to climb it is as much a reflection of creativity as skill. There is always a new way to approach something and Everest is no different. Except it has a lot more poo than it did. So much poo. So someday when like the human race like goes pretty much extinct mm-hmm. and then like millions of years go by and then more people somethings are here and they start digging and they'll just find like poop poop yeah that's the top of and then they'll analyze a poop and they'll be like <laughs> wow these were the neanderthals that lived <laughs> these were some crazy people who lived up here <laughs> and they'll talk about how not smart we were yes and all the mistakes we made yeah okay. absolutely yeah um all right so let's talk about 1996 there are four teams that go up um, well there are three that go up the southeast ridge the nepal side um may 10th to 11th 1996 the first team is from a group called adventure consultants team uh rob hall is their leader and then they have two guides, Michael Groom and Andy Harris. And then there's Beck Weathers, Yasuko Na- uh, Namba, Lou Kasiski. I'm not saying that right. John Krakauer, who mm-hmm. wrote Into Thin Air, which we'll talk about. Okay. Doug Hansen, Stuart Hutchinson, Frank Fishbeck, 
Dr. John Task, Helen Wilton. These are base camp people now. Helen Wilton is the base camp manager. There's some other base camp people I'm not really going to mention because they're not really in our story today. Ang Georgie, who's a Sherpa. Lakpa Chiri, also a Sherpa. Kami Sherpa, Tenzing Sherpa, um, Arita Sherpa. They kind of all end with Sherpa. Like there's some that don't have like full like first last names. Because they couldn't situations. pronounce their names. Possible. Yeah. Uh, like, we'll just call you Bill Sherpa. Is <laughs> that cool? Good. You give it that? Yeah. So for all of these people, there's a total of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, eleven Sherpa. So Ngawang Norbu, Chuldum. Ang, Tessering, oh Chongba, Pemba, and Tendi, Sherpa. Okay. So there's a lot. Then the, uh, there's the second team. Oh, uh, okay. Named Mountain Madness Team. Oh. Which, go for it. these names. Uh, this well, is the what, 80s, right? Uh, 96. Oh, 90s. I mean, well, still. still. Uh, Scott Fisher is a leader. Then there's Neil Beetleman and Anatoly Bokrev. And then there are the climbers, the people who paid to go on this trip. Sandy Hill, Tim Madsen, Charlotte Fox, Clev showing, Pete showing, uh, Lenny, I think, Lenny maybe, Gamelgard, uh, Martin Adams, Dr. Dale Cruz. There's a journalist, Jane Bromit, uh, and then a base camp manager, Dr. Ingrid Hunt. And they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine Sherpas who also have very similar names to the previous Sherpas, but they are not the same people. Hmm. There is one, um, I'm just going to mention, Big Pemba Sherpa. I like it. I like the, like, I wonder if they were like, look, they have like a Sherpa meeting and they're like, okay, or a Sherpa camp, a training camp or something. And they're like, okay, so you know people aren't going to be able to say your name. So just pick, right? like, what's your Sherpa name? And they're like, I'm Pemby Sherpa. This, this, this. Yeah, like they just pick a name. Yeah, they're over it already. And so some of them are similar. They're like, just give me my paycheck. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, The third team is a group from Taiwan, the Taiwanese team. They don't have uh, like a special name like Mountain Madness or because they're just climbing. They're just coming to climb. (laughs) They're like, we don't do that. Yeah. Makalu Gao, Ming Ho is the leader. Chen Yunnan, Kami Dorji Sherpa, uh, Nigma Gombu Sherpa. Mingma, Tissering, Sherpa, and that is their team. They're kind of a short, I think that's a partial list. I don't think that's everybody from their team, but those are the ones who went up on that side. Okay. Um, And then there is another, I guess there's some other teams kind of like around there. There are a couple people doing solo. There's like a Swedish solo expedition, Norwegian solo expedition. There's a Nepal Everest cleaning expedition, which I'm like, is that like the cleaning, is that like the cleaning crew? The pooper scoopers. Janitors? Like, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Um, International Commercial Expedition, Himalayan Guides Commercial Expedition. So I'm not sure who all are on those teams. I bet there is a lot of trash and waste left from people, even Mm -hmm. because I'm sure not everybody's, especially possibly back then, aren't as um, environmentally conscious. Like, I'm just saying. Yeah. I bet people lift stuff behind and they have to have people go and clean up. Oh, yeah. It's a thing. It's a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. So there was also this other expedition that was there. And I'm not, you know, it's kind of weird. The three that I mentioned that like Adventure Consultants, Mountain Madness and Taiwanese team, they kind of all went up together. Okay. And then there are these uh, couple other teams that I think parts of them went up at the same time, but they are not really included in the bulk of this story. And one of them is this MacGillivray 
Freeman IMAX iWorks expedition. Oh. And in there is this guy, David Brashears. Brashears, maybe is how you say it. Um, he's a film director. And um, I actually watched the film that he made because they were doing like an IMAX film as they mm-hmm. were going up. I didn't watch the IMAX film, but he did later a film for PBS, uh, Frontline, uh, talking about this disaster. Oh. And that's that's what I watched for the bulk of the information that I'm sharing today. Okay. Yeah, it's really good. It's on YouTube, the whole thing. Oh. Because PBS. Yeah, PBS is great. Um, there was also this Alpine Ascent International Guided Expedition, and these folks assisted in some of the rescue of some of the people that needed to be rescued later. So okay. there's not too much on them. And then on the Tibetan side, there was also, there were two teams on the Tibetan side. There was the Indo-Tibetan Border Police Everest Expedition. I don't know if they're actually police or uh-huh. it's just like, this is like the government expedition. Because, you know, on the Tibetan side, you you pay kind of like a smaller fee. You just all, it's all kind of inclusive. So I don't know if right. that's like the government version you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. I, yeah, I'm not entirely clear on that difference. And then there was this Japanese Fukuoka Everest expedition. I'm not really going to talk about them so much, but I'm going to read just this information that was on the Frontline website about these two groups. Okay. I'm just going to read it straight. Do it. Because it's pretty good. Uh, there was an immediate controversy over the deaths on the Tibetan side. So some people died on the Tibetan side at the same time that the people on the Nepalese have this disaster. Mm -hmm. On May 10th, in the early evening, three Indian climbers on the ITBP, that's that first team, radioed their team that they had reached the summit. When the storm came in, all three were caught near the top of the mountain and died. Their bodies were found by the descending Japanese Fukuoka team the following day. The next week, Captain M.S. Kohli of the ITBP alleged that the Japanese climbers had, in fact, encountered the still living Indian climbers on their ascent rather than descent and in continuing their summit bid instead of providing aid were responsible for their deaths. <gasps> yeah. Whoa. The Japanese denied the allegation. On June 11th, the ITBP retracted Coley's statement saying his remarks were personal and not the opinion of the organization. And in an additional controversy surfaced, some climbers, including guide Neil Beetleman, who's on the Nepal side, said that given the late hour and weather conditions, it was unlikely that the ITBP team actually ever reached the summit. So just a little... Oh, a little mountain gossip right there. Yeah. Jeez. And it is interesting that a lot of the stories, it's like told by the people who were there. Nobody's there recording these stories. Huh. You can say whatever you want to say uh-huh. about whatever's happened. So no one's going to know. So for this story, there are a lot of folks involved. Uh-huh. There's like lists of names, right? kind of read a lot of them out to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you remembered every single one of them. I've memorized all the players. You just name. I was, I was <laughs> like uh, that guy, that down. guy, that guy. Totally. <laughs> Sherpa, 100%. Sherpa, Sherpa. And then a bunch of other people. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of other people. <laughs> but I want to focus on that one story in particular that you kind of mentioned a little bit about uh, Beck Weathers. So Beck is a Texas-based pathologist. Um, He was born in 1946 and he grew up in a military family. He says that all of his life, he experienced a lot like different episodes of deep depression Mm -hmm. and that participating in outdoor adventures and pushing himself physically to the limit really helped him to kind of clear his mind. Oh, yeah. Um, And he ended up getting married to a woman named Peach. I do not know her maiden name. I love that. I love that. Her name is Peach as well. I love it. And they have two kids. And in 1986, he enrolls in a mountaineering course, and eventually he decides he's going to try to climb the seven summits, which are the seven highest peaks, one on each continent. And we've talked about 
some of these in previous episodes. So I'm not yes. going to really talk about them. Um, he, I did read that he summited Vincent Massif in Antarctica, but I couldn't find where he did any other of the summits. And I, I can tell you that he did not summit all seven. If he did go up the other summits, he doesn't he doesn't go up Everest. I mean, he does, but he doesn't. He doesn't I just kind of like that how he talks about that he was depressed and this is what he did to kind of help him get out of it. Yes. He's like being open about that stuff because a lot of people won't say like what was going on with yeah, him. Yeah. That it was actually like a mental health, you know, maybe crisis that mm-hmm. pushed you in this direction to, you know what, this is what's going to work for me. Yeah. I don't know. I just think it's cool because a lot of people are ashamed. It's true. To talk about it. Well, and he, but it's very common. You know, he he talks about it a lot, actually. He um, there are a lot of articles that I found of him talking about. It. There's YouTube videos of him talking about his experience and what his life was like previously and after. Mm-hmm. And that just living in Dallas, the every cookie cutter house mm-hmm. situation, suburbs kind oh, of thing. Really. Oh, yeah. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. I was, feel that he didn't enjoy that. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> it didn't fulfill him. Right. So in 1996. He travels to Nepal with the tour team Adventure Consultants. So he's with Adventure Consultants. Um, And a few months prior to the trip, he had actually gotten this eye surgery to correct his nearsightedness. And this would prove to be an issue later. Just keep it in your brain. Um, So, yeah, like I said, the story is super well known. John Krakauer, who's a journalist and mountaineer, was on, um, was he an Adventure Consultants? I think he was an Adventure Consultants. It might have been. I'm not sure. He's on one of these groups. I can never remember who's where or I what. I think but... he was on that one, the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he wrote Into Thin Air. This It's about this whole summit disaster. He originally wrote it as an outside magazine article in 1996. And I found the archived article and I linked it in the show notes. So if you want to read the whole article, you can. Or if you want to read the book, you can. Either way, it was that article was adapted into a book. Mm-hmm. And then that book was made into a movie by the same name in 1997. And again in 2015 called Everest. So first movie in 1997 is called Into Thin Air. The second movie is called Everest. I'm trying to think of who was in that movie. I can see the front in my mind. It's just like. Like George know. Clooney. <laughs> I don't know. Like who 96. Was I'm trying. To, yeah, I, I can like see the faces, uh, but I cannot remember the names. Oh, so. OK, you just keep yeah, talking. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. just going to check real quick. But I will say so Beck was played by um, Josh Brolin veteran Goonies actor oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, Thanos in 2015 in the Everest movie. All right. <clears throat> there was also a 1996 60 Minutes Australia interview, which is really great because some of these people are from Australia. There's uh, some folks from New Zealand, the United States. They're kind of from all over. Christopher McDonald. Oh, this is the 1997 version. Uh-huh. Nathaniel Parker and Peter Horton. I think Peter Horton played Beck. Weathers, which, by the way, is a great name. So just so you know, um, Christopher McDonald, I'm like, what else was he in? Happy Gilmore. Oh, yeah. Grease, too. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Saying. There you go. All right. Go check it out, you guys. And then, like I mentioned, this frontline film that I watched on YouTube, uh, it's called Storm Over Everest. It was filmed in 2006 and released in 2008. It's directed by David uh, Brea Shears, who was on the mountain for the summit disaster. Oh, he was nice. with that IMAX group, right? All right. So May 6, 1996, there's those three climbing teams, Mountain Madness with Scott Fisher, Adventure Consultants with Rob Hall, and the Taiwanese expedition with Makalu Gao. Okay. Mm-hmm. They depart 
for uh, base camp for camp two. And they're going to be the first three teams to try to do this summit. So Neil Beetleman from the Mountain Madness Guide says, when we left base camp, we were all wary, of course, of mighty Everest in front of us. But certainly we were filled with hope and anticipation and off we went. This was why we had come here. This is why we'd spent so many months on the mountain, arriving to the mountain, preparing for in those months and months beforehand, training and getting our lives ready to be here. This was it. This was our chance. So we took off and it was a great feeling. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, let's do this. They're doing it. Always at the beginning. Yes. <laughs> let's do it. All right. On May 7th, they get to Camp 2 and they have a rest day. And Lenny, I think I'm saying her name right. She's female. Uh, I think she's German. Gemmel Gard was with Mountain Madness. She says, I was sort of hyperventilating and I thought, what's going on? What's going on? Of course, it was very, very exhausting. And there's no way you can walk fast or climb just at a normal speed. And I thought, well, I'm probably hyperventilating because I'm really, really tired. And then I realized that I was beginning to cry because it was so amazing. It was so stunningly beautiful. And it was so overwhelmingly happiness, whatever, bliss giving. Of course, all the adrenaline and endorphins sort of probably kicked in. But the beauty of being high, it cannot be paralleled by anything else. It is just so tremendously beautiful. They're only at Camp 2. <laughs> wow. And she's just like overcome with emotion. Just stay there. Exactly. I'm like, if I ever visit Everest, mm -hmm. I'll go see the base camp. Cool. Yeah. I won't stay for very long because there might be an avalanche. I don't know. <laughs> Just saying. Just going to check it out. Yeah. Then, yeah. Peace out. Deuces. On May 8th, they made their way from Camp 2 to Camp 3. And at this point, there's a windstorm right when they're about to leave. And Scott Fisher, who's the Mountain Madness guy, he is like, you know what? We might wait a day because the wind is a little bit nuts. But ultimately, he decides to move along because Rob Hall, the leader of Adventure Consultants, comes over and he's like, hey, bros, we're going up the mountain. Mm -hmm. And he's like, we should all go together. Right. But I think it's more of like, we're going to go too because you're going. Uh -huh. Maybe a little bit. Maybe a little, little bit. Little, little competition. A little bit of competition. Yeah. Uh, Beck says, so this is Beck Leathers. He says, I was optimistic. I felt calm about it. I didn't have any great sense of anxiety, fear or trepidation. I had already come pretty dadgum close to achieving everything that I actually set as a goal. I just love that he said dadgum. Dadgum it. Because <laughs> he's a Texan. That's right. Uh, one, I just wanted to be there. That was the first thing. I wanted to step on the mountain. I wanted to do some climbing on it. I wanted to be part of such a group. Second one was I wanted to get through the icefall. And if I had just done that, I'd have been satisfied. My next goal was to get to camp two. And for me, the goal that I really had set as the top of my probable achievable list was to get to camp four. And so moving out from camp three to camp four, I knew that I was going to get there. And that really had pretty much checked off everything that I had really realistically thought as a 49 year old pushing 50 mm -hmm. that I could probably count on if I stayed healthy. So he wasn't even like trying to summit. Mm -hmm. He was like, I'm going to get as far as I can get. It's all good. And I'll be happy with that. I'll be happy with yeah. that. Yeah. I should mention that when he went on this trip, things between him and Peach were no good. Oh. Like, she was kind of over this adventuring. Yeah, I can it, see that. It kind of reminds pretty me. pretty expensive. Yeah. Well, and it kind of reminds me of the Mauro Prosperi story mm -hmm. when his wife was like, you never spend time with your family. You're always training for this thing. It's super annoying to us. Yeah. Why can't you just be there for us? Yeah. It it becomes uh, more of a probably more of a priority, mm -hmm. at least to her. Yeah. Than her and the family. Yeah. Also, the amount of money going towards that <sighs> stuff. Right. I mean, I don't know their financial situation, but I'm just saying. He is. Uh, what did I say? A pathologist. Yeah. 
He's a pathologist. Well, he's probably making some like pretty good money. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah, no, I feel you. All right. So on May 9th, they climb up to Camp 4. At this point, everyone is in down suits, like the big climby suits that you see with like the stuff on the hands and the feet, uh-huh. you know, to help them stay in the snow. Um, and they're using supplemental oxygen for the first time. And they're moving from Camp 3, which is 24,500 feet to Camp 4, which is 26,000 feet. And Neil Beetleman, who's one of the guides for Mountain Madness, says, we left some gear at Camp 3 and we headed up towards the Yellow Band and the Geneva Spur. Around the Geneva Spur is the South Coal. We're going to hang around the South Coal a lot in this story. So it's kind of like below the summity area, but like closer to Camp 4. Okay. And Camp 4 is the last one. Camp 4 is the the last one before the push to the summit. Okay, got it. Uh, Climbing above 24,000 into 25,000 feet is really hard. I don't care who you are. It really is. It's challenging and it's hard work. One of the climbers, Sandy Hill, who was an intermediate climber at best, says that this is her first time using supplemental oxygen ever. She said using that device is a very scary thing because it's your lifeline. That's it. But you realize your air and with it, your capacity to think and move and reason and everything else is coming at least in small part and maybe in greater part, increasingly greater part, the higher you go from what's being delivered by that mechanical device in that can. And that's a very slender thread to be hanging on to. Yeah, no, I'm not into it. <laughs> that is how I feel about diving. Oh, me too. It that, is exact- Diving's a little creepy. When I read that, I was like, that's exactly how I feel about diving. Yeah. That's why it creeps me out. Because all that's between me and, you know, possibly my demise is a can on my back. Mm-hmm super creepy yeah when you yeah. stop and think about it's not good to think about it it's not good to think yeah about it. just have to get through the dive <laughs> just and just look around and enjoy it yeah get out uh so that same day this is may 9th uh, at 4 p.m the taiwanese climber chen yunan slips and he <gasps> falls into a crevasse oh no he's down he says to his team i'm okay i'm gonna follow you up to camp four everything's cool so their team is like all right deuces this is Mak- makalu gao Wait, they were going from three to four? They were going from three to and four. And he fell in. And he he's fell like, in. I'll get out and meet you there? Yeah. He's like, don't worry about it. I'm going to, I'm fine. Really? Everything's okay. I don't know if they like pulled him out or if he was like in the place where he could get out himself. But still. But still. Um, unfortunately, within a few hours, he actually dies from his injuries. I wonder if he knew that was a possibility. And, and he just was like, go on without He me. didn't want anybody to get in his predicament. You know what I mean? Like, sure. Yeah. Get anybody hurt trying to save him? It's possible. So they call up Makalao Gao on the radio and they say, hey, Chen Yunan, he he died. Mm-hmm. And Makalao and a couple Sherpas who are with him are super stunned because when they left, he was like, it's all good. I'll see you guys again for a little while. You know, everything's cool. Yeah. Um, and so he's like, I don't know what to do. And one of the guys who had called to let him know about it had said that what he said back to them on the phone was just like, thank you. And like hung up and then they decided to climb up. And he was like, wow, that's really like, why would he just climb? Like he doesn't care mm-hmm. about this guy. But actually what went through Makala, Makalu's mind was that Chen Yunan was like the one in their team who really wanted to get to the summit. He was like, I want to get up there. It's like his number one goal. He was super enthusiastic about it. And so he felt like I want to go up there in honor of my teammate. Okay, And I think it was the shock of finding out that he had died. It was like, wow, this is weird and unexpected. And like, what do you say? You know, also, he's Taiwanese. His first language is not English. So what do you say to a, you know, English speaker on the phone? Like, 
great. Thanks. I mean, I mean, what do you say? Yeah, I got to go do this for my friend. Yeah. Bye. So he said that the next morning they were talking about what they should do. The two Sherpas that were with him, Minma and Linma, told him that it was a bad sign to have a death on the mountain when they were going up. Right. Mm -hmm. And that they didn't know what to do. And I think they were kind of like, let's just not do it. But they didn't want to say that out loud. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, And so he called Camp 1 and Camp 2 and he talked to another guy in his group and said, what should I do? The Sherpas don't want to go up. And he told me that he thought that the Sherpas would go if Makalu said, like, I want to go. So listen to the people who know. I know. right? Yeah, because they won't always come right out and say it. Yeah. They'll give hints. Yeah, dance around it and just pick up those hints and do whatever. It's like how your mom says, like, maybe you should think about this thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I just know from like even Islanders. Yeah. They will not directly tell you. You're like, hey, something. should I do this thing? And they're like, mm. and it's yeah. like if they're not automatically like, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Then probably you shouldn't probably do it. Shouldn't do it. <laughs> um, all right. So around 10 p.m. that night, the winds die down and it's a beautiful, clear night. Mm. Team leader Scott Fisher and Rob Hall decide they're going to press for the summit. So they, you have to start climbing for the summit at night. So that you get there in the morning to be able to get back down by two o'clock. Before two. Okay. Because it's just like the timing. Right? right. Okay. Which I feel like a lot of summits are kind of that way. Like you get it's up like a super window early. Of time. Yeah. There's a window before the weather goes crazy or something happens mm-hmm. or whatever. So um, there were some delays, though. They were getting everybody ready. It's like a big group. It's a huge group of people. There's like 34 people mm-hmm. all going up together total. And so in the film, a number of folks commented on the absolute beauty of the silhouette of the. So they they're leaving. They're going up. They can see the silhouette of the mountain behind it is the Milky Way. The stars are incredible. I would want to see that. No, I would want to see that. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to do all that. <laughs> Not to just see that. But yeah. No. no. Yeah. Um, and they said that it's they're so high up. It almost feels like you could reach out and touch the stars. Oh, and I'm yeah. like, that's cool. That's, that's so amazing. Cool. So. Uh, Before they head up, they had originally wanted two Sherpas to go up and fix ropes. But for some reason, this plan has changed and they don't go up. So Neil Beetleman says the plan originally, as I understood it, was that both Aang Dorji and Lupsang, the two climbing leaders of the Sherpa, would leave camp at 10 p.m. They would work together, making sure the trail was broken and the ropes were in place. Both had been to the top numerous times. They knew exactly where the ropes should go and what condition the old ropes should be in, where they might be, where the anchor points were. So we were using their experience from previous climbs to make sure that none of these bottlenecks would occur for our group as we came forward. So what he's talking about breaking is they're going to break in the path, like literally stomping in the snow to break a path for people to go up because they're going to be the first people to go up for this season. No oh, one's been up yet. Okay, okay. Yeah. Gosh, these guys are incredible. Yeah. And so they're going to be setting up the ropes all the kind of yeah. to prepare everything because what you don't want to have happen is that everybody's going up at the same time and then you're waiting on the people who are prepping the ropes and then you're just standing in a line waiting, wasting oxygen, mm-hmm. getting cold, not mm-hmm. moving. Mm-hmm. They're not sure why they didn't go up, but Ang Dorji says, "We decided tomorrow we're going to summit." And then we talk a little bit about fixing the line above Camp 4. And then I talk with Scott Fisher Sherpa, Lupsang Jangbu. And then we sit together and we talk. Okay, we're going to fix, you and me, we're going to fix line tomorrow morning. We may need to leave here half an hour before the other people. And then we both talk. But the next morning, he didn't come early. And then we all had to go together. Oh, so they couldn't fix any, like prep anything. Yeah. So, oh, I, and I'm not sure when he says morning, I mean, they're leaving at 10 p.m., 
So I'm not sure why, because I think the group would be a couple hours behind them. Mm-hmm. Like they were going to leave at like midnight. So I don't know if he meant like early morning or what yeah. exactly. Anyway, so there's this line of climbers with the Sherpas in front of them breaking the path. Uh, now that the climbers are above camp four, the oxygen level is at one third that of sea level. So thin. And this is the area that they call the death zone. Uh-huh. Um, because the air is so thin, you're getting less oxygen to your brain. And someone described it as feeling like you have the mental capacity of a slow child, which that's a little bit offensive. That's kind of rude. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, it's like your body and your mind are compromised. Mm-hmm. But you also have to be like super aware of what you're doing because any misstep could lead to your death. So it's like you're not fully there, but you have to be fully there. Yeah. It sounds like a catch 22 That's that yeah. you could die from. So Charlotte Fox from the Mountain Madness group, she's one of the people who paid to go on the tour. She describes it as laborious. It's not very easy walking. It's not like going to the bank to cash a check. So you're in the dark, too, and you've got this headlamp beam and all you can see is where you're looking. So you see these people stop or you look down just as your foot's going in between two rocks and you struggle back up. And then there's a little bit of ice crystals always in the air up high when it's cold like that. It just sounds daunting Mm -hmm. and tiring. Yeah. Because you're just not getting enough oxygen to your blood to move your body in a way that's normal. You're right. Just trudging. Well, you're just kind of going outside your normal bounds. For sure. Like, we can yeah. all do it. Everyone can do it. Right. Even a slow child can do it. <laughs> Jeez. I hope they mean, like, just children who walk really slowly. Let's just imagine that. Let's <laughs> not be rude. I know. So rude. On May 10th, After slowly making their way above Camp 4, the sun rises and they reach a place that's called the balcony. And it's here that for some reason, Rob Hall had asked the adventure people and his team to rendezvous and it starts to get super crowded. There's just like different groups of people piling up in this line. Beck says, when the sun first comes up, it's a very welcome thing. There's something about watching the light come up the valley towards you, which is kind of like a friendly thing moving up and you, you know it's going to give you warmth. It's going to give you light. It's going to give you that opportunity to go ahead and go up higher on some tougher terrain. And you're always conscious of that notion. Every 15 degrees, an hour has gone by. You cannot Mm -hmm. be up there during that next night. And so you've got this clock working against you. And that starts to press upon you thinking, I've got to keep this moving, get there by this time so I can get back down safely. So some climbers have really questioned why Rob Hall had them stop at any point on the summit, because any time that you waste, daylight that you're wasting, oxygen, in your tank is a problem. Um, And actually, it's here at this point at the balcony where Beck realizes that his eye situation is bad news and he is not going to be able to summit. So the night before he's even at base camp, he was talking about how he noticed that he was having problems with his vision. Um, And there was something that just wasn't like he would put on his glasses and it was like he was using someone else's prescription. Um, He didn't have any depth perception and it just got worse the further up they got. And then at nighttime, it was really bad. And he noticed that, um, yeah, he just couldn't adapt to the situation. And once they got to this balcony, he kind of was like, I can't, I can't do anymore because I can't see what I'm doing. I'm stepping and it's not right. Yeah. Uh, And so he tells Rob, I'm going to stop here. Mm -hmm. And He says, I wasn't in a position to continue the climb. And frankly, it was okay. I'd done more than I thought I was going to do. I was not unhappy with what had occurred. And going to the summit of Everest, while it sounds better than sitting in Dallas, you know, a lot of guys have been there and nobody knows who they are. And nobody who even I knew 
and cared about cared if I went to the summit. So he's just like, very good. Yeah. So smart. So smart. Absolutely. Yes. So he tells Rob and he says, I really don't mind staying there. It sounds like a big imposition to stay on the balcony all day, but it's one of the most gorgeous places on earth. Sitting there was almost like a day at the beach. If I'd had a lounge chair, it would have been perfect (laughs) because you're very warm. Mm -hmm. It's pleasant. There's no wind. You've got this incredible view. Mm -hmm. And if they could just have transplanted me and sent me there for the day, I'd have been perfectly happy to have done that several times. It was just delightful. So that morning from 7 to 10 a.m., Neil, who's the guide for Mountain Madness, starts helping the Sherpas fix the ropes because he's noticing it's just like going slow and everybody's piling up and he's like, let me help you guys out. Like, what can I do? Whatever. So they're working on getting these ropes up the South Summit. Um, Around 10 a.m., Neil and the first climbers make it to the South Summit. And at this point, the weather is still calm and clear. And I'm saying South Summit, but they're not at the Summit Summit. They're at a place where there's this thing called the Hillary Step. And it's a 40 foot ice wall and they put ropes up on it. Mm -hmm. And then there's already kind of ropes from previous climbs that are there. And but they're putting like new ropes and then everyone's going to go up the Hillary step and then you go a little bit further and then there's the summit. So you have to climb up that Mm -hmm. after all the other stuff. Mm. Ooh, Mm -hmm. an ice, a 40 foot ice wall. Mm -hmm. Not into it. Not into it. So more folks are kind of arriving. The wind starts to pick up a little bit. I mean, it's still clear. Uh Beautiful, bright, sunny day, Mm. but wind. So the downside is that, yes, they set up these ropes, but there's, again, so many people that there's now a line to go up this Hillary step and it's slow going, right? You know, it's getting closer to the point where, you know, it's 10 o'clock. It's probably going to take another couple hours or so to get up there. Right. By the time you sit through this line of people and then get up for the two hours, it's going to be like one o'clock, which Mm -hmm. is really about the time you should be going down. They say two o'clock is the latest. Right. So there were these three guys that are like, you know what? It's probably time to turn back. There are these three guys in the group, Lou, John and Stuart or Stu. So Lou, Stu and John, whatever. Um, They're all members of Rob Hall's team, the same team that Beck is on. And they're like, you know what? We need to turn around. Mm hmm. We're good. Yeah. John says, I reached just a touch below the South Summit at 1130. I sat down and waited until the rope cleared. That took 20 to 30 minutes. They were so slow. Uh, In the video, there's some people who were like, man, I was watching them. And I was like, God, why aren't they going faster? But then when it was their turn to get on the rope, they're like, this is really hard. Yeah. Actually, I get it. (laughs) Like, shouldn't have been judging those people. That 40 foot step. Yeah. Just a little bit difficult. No. Yeah. Yeah. So... John says, sitting down with a constant flow of two liters per minute, if your breathing settles, you're getting more oxygen. The hypoxic pain and everything else settled down, and I started to think and make what's called a, quote, military appreciation. I suppose it's on automatic. And I thought, if I keep going now, I'll be out of oxygen, get to the summit, but I'll be coming back down to the South Pole in the dark and without oxygen and more tired than I am now. So at 125, Neil who was with the Sherpas, he gets to the summit. 125. He's the first dude up oh, there. No. 125. Among the first group of climbers to arrive are Anatoly uh, Bukriv, that Russian alpinist, mm-hmm. uh, John Krakauer, the okay. Into the Thin Air guy, Martin Adams, Andy Harris, and Cleve Showinger. Showing, sorry, showing. Uh, Neil takes some pictures. 
him and Anatoly have a conversation. They congratulate each other for summiting. Um, Neil says, Anatoly came over to me. It was probably maybe half an hour or so after I arrived and said that he was going to descend. And I kind of thought for a second, wow, well, not everybody's here. But, you know, it's nearly two o'clock now or right at two. And two of our clients had been there and had made it to the summit, two of the six that started. And I had no idea what happened below on the mountain. So basically what's going on below him is there's a massive bottleneck. Sandy Hill, who's one, who's the kind of like intermediate hiker, mm-hmm. climber, says there was a very confusing jumble of ropes on the Hillary step. I'm not sure whether they were ropes from the expeditions that were on the mountain that day or whether there were ropes that had been abandoned from previous expeditions. But there were many ropes that were blowing around and it was very difficult to tell which ones were actually tied in and which ones had been, in fact, just iced in, which it, which it would have made for an unsafe hold. So I was confused and relieved when another member of the expedition came up behind me and helped me do a little sorting out on that issue. So it's just like... So many people. Unorganized. Super unorganized. Yeah, too many people. Yeah. So by 2 p.m., more climbers reached the summit. Sandy Hill, Charlotte Fox, Lainey, uh, Yasuko Namba. On the way down, Michael Groom, who's uh, uh, Rob Hall's group. He's one of the guides under Rob Hall. He sees this guy, Doug Hansen, who's 70 meters below the summit, kind of coming up very Mm -hmm. slowly. Mm Mm-hmm. Sandy also said, I just want to mention, this is kind of a great thing that she said. She goes, nobody described all the false summits to me, but this has to be it. And so I'd say, I can make it that far for sure. That's it. Like she would see. (laughs) (laughs) But I wonder where all the people are. Like, why isn't everybody right there? And then I'd get that far. Not very far. Not much higher. And lo and behold, that wasn't the highest spot either. That happened about four or five times. Until finally, the last time I could see it was the summit because there were people up there and there were flags and bits of pieces of things that you find on summits. So I knew that that was the real one. Wow. Yeah. So all this time from the morning until 2 p.m., Beck has been sitting on the balcony waiting. Just waiting for Rob Paul to come back down. checking out the view. He's just like so happy. He might have dozed off for a little bit. I mean, I would have. They've been up since like 10 the night before. Yeah. 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 Or like take a little nappy nap. Yeah. I don't know if that's like advisable on the side of Everest, <laughs> but like, yeah, sure. You know, before Rob Hall went up and they had that conversation, you know, he told Beck, like, I want you to stay here for me. We'll go down together. Beck had said, I can't see very well. And so Rob was like, hey, I'm going to come back. I'm going to go up, make sure every, all the clients get up there. I'm going to come back down for you. I'm going to short rope you to me and then we'll go down together. You know, super experienced. He's the leader of this group. So Beck is like, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to wait for you here. He says... Cross my heart and hope to die. I'll wait for you. Oh. Um, so around 2 p.m., those three men who had turned around, who were like, enough already. Like, we just cannot. Mm-hmm. Lou, Stu, and John. They see Beck. They get to the balcony and they're like, hey, what's up? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you doing here? Um, and he's, he explains the situation. You know, I have no depth perception. Like, I'm not going to be able to make it up there. It's going to be really bad. Because even the UV from the sun, it's like really hard for him to see. Snow and, blindness. Yeah, at snow blindness. And at some point, he actually scratched his cornea. Ew. When he rubbed his eye. So there's all these things going on with him. And so they're like, oh, man, that, you know, that that bites like you should come down with us because we're going down right now. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, do you have a short rope that, you know, and they were like, well, we don't really have a rope. And he's like, "Okay, well, you know what? I'm just going to wait on Rob. He's going to be right down. Yeah. He's like, it's cool. No worries. The three men, they're like, it's still a clear day. Mm -hmm. Rob is the experienced leader. They're just like on this trip. They're like, this is not a bad decision. There wasn't any life or death situation. Right. They're like, sounds good. We'll see you at Camp Four. Deuces. Yep. And they 
head down. Yeah. Uh, Beck is also thinking that a lot of folks will be coming down and he'll catch up either way. Like even if he doesn't wait for Rob, like maybe Rob's later or something, he can always find someone who has a whatever. He's like, no big deal. Like there's lots more people coming down anyway. After 3 p.m., folks started to come down the mountain. And as it happened going up, now there's a bottleneck going down. Oh, boy. Everyone's leaving at the same time. This is why I don't go to concerts. It's like you got to leave. If you go to like a baseball game, you got to leave at the seventh inning stretch to make it home. Any big event. Yeah. Like I just can't. I don't like a lot of people. Like crowds. Uh, Yeah, the waiting and Mm -hmm. just like all the things and then the traffic. Right. Just stay home. I forget who it was who said that. I think it was John Krakauer. Someone was taking pictures or maybe it was Neil. I'm not sure. They were taking pictures up at the top and they could see down below like this weather system. I mean, they're they're very high up. So weather systems aren't going to be above them. Mm -hmm. They're going to be below them. So there's like this dark, ominous situation happening. Yuck. And they're like. Oh, that doesn't look good. Like we should probably head down. So yeah, around 3 p.m., they start to see a little bit of a chance. Like there was more wind is picking up and unknown to the climbers, there had been a storm coming inland from the coast that I think was like a hurricane or something that yeah. built into a blizzard that is now headed directly for them. Oh no. Mm-hmm. Rob Hall, who's supposed to be coming down to get back, he's delayed because remember that guy, Doug, who was like 70 feet or so below the summit when everyone was coming down at like two or something. That guy, Doug. That guy, Doug. <laughs> um, he actually is a postman from the U.S. He's a U.S. Postal Service worker. Uh, he had like worked extra jobs. He had been saving up because this was like his dream. Wow. He arrived at the summit as everybody was heading back down. And he actually had come once before and was unable to summit. And Rob knew about this. He saw Doug and he was like, let me help this guy. But at 4 p.m., Rob and Doug are still at the summit and something is wrong with Doug. Uh-oh. By 4.30, Rob makes an urgent call to base camp to ask for additional oxygen. So they basically when they call down on the radio, it goes to like all the camps have people with the radios. And he's like, hey, someone's got to come up here with extra oxygen. We have a situation. Come up to the summit. I need help. Um, at the same time, as they're descending, Sandy Hill gets super sick. All of a sudden. And Charlotte Fox pulls down Sandy's bottom opening thing, like her butt opening. Yeah. yeah. And gives her a shot of dexamethasone. Yeah, dexamethasone. Yeah, to revive her. So Charlotte says, coming down from the South Summit before we got to the last fixed ropes and the storm came in, I encountered Sandy down again. So she had been falling, lying on the ridge. And I could tell that she was she had acute mountain sickness Uh and she was not moving very well, not speaking very well and basically very confused, a sign of cerebral edema. And we had been taught to do as we had been taught to do. I pulled out a syringe of dexamethasone. I feel like it's like a steroid or something. Right, right, right. We kept them in little toothpaste holders in our pockets just in case this happened and inside our coats so that they were warm and the liquid didn't freeze. I pulled that out and we had sort of practice in base camp that you pinch a muscle of the butt. Yeah. And you really want it intramuscularly. Yeah. And make sure that you get it get into that to deliver the liquid. So I unzipped the rainbow zipper to her rear end and I knew she had la- layers of pile on, but that the needle would go right through that. And so I took a wing back and I gave it to her. <laughs> She was so out of it, she hardly flinched. But within five minutes, she was coming around. It worked. It cleared her head, reduced some of the pressure that was causing it and Mm -hmm. her cerebral edema. And by the time Neil got to us, he was able to take a hold of the back of her harness and help her work down further as Tim and I moved ahead together. Wow, good call. Yeah. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah. Neil was particularly worried at this point because he's actually out of oxygen. 
He had been up at the summit since 10 a.m. And it's now six hours later. Ooh. Right. Because he was like first one going up, helping the Sherpas, gets up there, hangs out for uh-huh. a while, la, la, yeah. la, comes down. Because it only lasts five hours. Yeah. But don't they have more than one? More than one. Oxygen tank? Oh, yeah. So there are different oxygen tanks, but I guess he didn't have another one or I don't know what the deal was. There was some confusion on oxygen tanks. Okay. It's around this time that Beck has been sitting in that one spot still. <laughs> Just waiting. <laughs> waiting on Rob. I feel like that would be me. I would be like, no, I said I'd wait. So I'm waiting. Yeah. No, that's exactly what he kind of was. He was like, yeah. no, I promised Rob I would stay here. So I'm staying here. Yeah. yeah. Because that's the safe thing to do is stay. It's what we're taught. It's what you're taught. Stay where you're supposed to be. Right. And, well, and he's semi injured. He's he's impaired. Yes. So, uh, what's worse about this is now it's dusk and he's oh, no. becoming hypothermic and his vision is getting worse. Gets he's worse been there nights. for a while. Yeah. He's been all day. Oh, my God. Since they got there, like 7 a.m. Something like that. Mike Groom is coming down with his client, Yasuko Namba. And side note, Yasuko is the second Japanese woman to summit Everest. Wow. Go, girl. Mike is like, Beck, dude, you have got to come down. Uh Like, you need to not wait on Rob. Something's going on with you. Like, you're getting hypothermic, probably a little bit disoriented. Uh I'm going to short rope you to me. I have one. Uh Uh-huh. Um, also, Yasuko is not feeling well. She's actually fallen down a couple times on the way down with uh-huh. Mike. And so he's like, all right, let me take these people. down. Let's go. Right. Beck says it became apparent to me that I was starting to go into a fairly serious hypothermia. One, I was beginning to shiver pretty hard and all that comfort had left. So his like beach time was over. It's done deal. Uh, and I began to hallucinate. And so I could see a couple different fields moving and transitioning and flowing across. And I had this enormous sense of apathy that was settling in. Oh. It wasn't I didn't have a sense of dread at all. I just had this sense that I'm sitting here and I'm watching this and I know it's not real, that these images that I'm seeing in front of my face aren't really existing. And I realized that I could easily sit here and just simply never get up. And the thing about it was, it did not disturb me. I was just saying, isn't this interesting? How odd. And at that point, Mike and Yasuko came down. Wow, good timing. Thank God Mike came down. Yeah. Around this time, Lou, Stu, and John get back to Camp 4, and they make it to the tents. Um, And the storm at this point has picked up a lot. Like, it's kind of nuts. I think John described it as a dozen express trains coming straight (gasps) at you. And actually, John in the film talks about being inside of his tent And he's laying there. He's the only one in the tent. Uh And it feels like someone is shoving him, repeatedly shoving him. And then he realizes it's the wind. Wow. It's insane. It's like 80 miles an hour. Oh, my gosh. Um, At 5 p.m., Rob had sent two radio transmissions to base camp. And one of the folks at base camp, Guy Cutter, is like, you should think about leaving Doug and heading down so we can regroup and figure out how to help him. Mm -hmm. Because Rob is staying with Doug at the sun. They're at the summit. And it's a very difficult thing that Guy is telling him. He's like, you don't want to be like, leave your client. Uh But also, he says, if there was no action happening anyway, and Rob was the only rescuer there and he wasn't able to do anything, the first rule of rescuer is to look after yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can't sacrifice yourself. You can only save people as long as it's safe. Yes. For you. Yeah. The two teams who are still making their way down actually end up meeting up. So all those people, it's like Charlotte and Sandy and this guy, mm-hmm, Tim, mm-hmm. and, you know, Beck and Yasuko, all these people, they meet up. I think there's about 10 of them. And it's both Beck and Yasuko are getting worse. And so Neil is helping Mike with Yasuko. 
And not only that, the weather again, it just, everything is increasing. Mm -hmm. Neil says at this point, it's pretty clear that things are falling apart. Now we've got Sandy who's starting to recover. That's good. But clearly, you know, not where she was just prior to this. There are people moving on the mountain now, and it's really hard for me to even see who I need to try to help or, you know, who's in our group. People are moving in and out from different teams as we go down. It's hard enough for an individual I know speaking personally to keep myself together and to make sure I'm concentrating and not tripping over my crampons and slipping off. And now there's all these people. There's all these distractions. And I remember thinking to myself, there's so much going on here. I don't even know who to pay attention to and who to watch out for. So Beck says, so Mike got Yasuko with Neil so he could watch after her and he short roped me, which is to basically put me on a short tether. So if I decided to walk off the face of the mountain, then we'd at least be going together as friends. Oh, no. (laughs) Which I'm like, Beck has a really great sense of humor. Yeah. Honestly. 6 p.m. on May 10th, Neil and Mike and the climbers with them, they can see the camp four as they were heading down, right? But as the storm intensified, they lose sight of the camp and even the path in front of them. So... Sandy Hill remembers it all went white. All suddenly, those bright colored tents were not only gone, but it was almost impossible to make out the identity of a person who was six, eight, ten feet in front of me. And farther than that, impossible. Instantly, we were in. It felt like a sea of milk. You couldn't, you simply couldn't see anything. And it became more important than ever that we stayed close. It was disorienting as well because they actually came across some discarded items from previous climbers, making them think we were headed in the right direction. So they see like oxygen tanks, pieces of tents, Mm -hmm. clothing, you know, like just junk. Yeah. And they're like, okay, good. We're going the right way. Ooh, that's why they have to clean the mountain. Yeah. That's why they have cleaners. (laughs) Yes. So the thing is, though, the wind is like 80, upwards of 80 miles an hour. So they're being constant or just constant wind, just constantly coming at you. Like it's not letting up. That's insane. And they're overcorrecting where they're walking because they're being pushed by the wind. And so in, I think it was Neil, either Neil or Mike, they were thinking about how like, okay, base camp four is here, but like we're being pushed here. So we're overcorrecting. And like, what if we fall off this super steep edge that's over here? So they're kind of like in this weird space where they're like, we can't see anything in front of us. And if we Mm -hmm. went over the edge, like that's it. So all while this is going on, Makalu Gao, the Taiwanese man who mm-hmm. was summiting for his friend who had passed away earlier, fell into the crevasse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he comes across, he's coming down, and he comes across two Sherpas who are dragging Scott Fisher, who's the other team leader. So Rob Hall, team leader from the one group that Beck is in, and then now Scott Fisher, mm-hmm. who's the Mountain Madness team leader, mm-hmm. is like in bad shape. And they're like dragging him through the snow and ice. Um, he was sick. He kept saying he was sick and he couldn't get get up on his own. So they were kind of like scooting him down, uh-huh. helping him down. And Makalu was like, I'm going to follow you guys to Camp 4 because it was getting crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And he was like, I can't see what I'm doing. And he was by himself. By himself. Mm-hmm. Around 7 p.m., Beck, Neil, Yasuko, Mike, Charlotte, Sandy, and the rest of that whole group, they um, can't go any further. It's like, I Neil is like, we have to stop because we're either going to die falling Mm -hmm. off or we're gonna like get lost and be someplace way far away from camp four Mm -hmm. so he's like we need to stop put our backs to the wind huddle together neil said finally i just had this premonition that somebody one of us was going to take the wrong step and fall at the face on either side i wasn't even sure exactly what direction we were facing anymore so i just yelled to everybody to sit down we've got to huddle up put your backs to the wind let's try to regroup a little bit 
So where are the Sherpas in this? Camps. They're at the camps. Oh, they don't go up with them. Not always. Yeah. Only if they're carrying a lot of stuff. So I think there were some Sherpas in the groups that were kind of going, like there's some Sherpas with Scott. Uh-huh. Um, there were some Sherpas who were going to be going up to try and help out Rob. But yeah, there's a lot at the camps. So, but none in this group that's coming down? No, no. It's like the people that you kind of want. Because that's who you need. Yeah. I feel like I feel like if they're with them, they could they would know instinctively. This is where we go. Yeah, yeah, be able to guide them down. Yeah. So they all get together. They're in this like craggy, barren, rocky, hard ice, snow everywhere landscape. Now they're in the dark, which sounds awful. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and through the lights, so everybody's got their little headlamps. All you're going to see is particles of snow, like ice whipping mm-hmm. by you, like blizzard action. Um, at this time, Beck realizes his right hand just wouldn't move. So he decides he's going to take his glove off and stick his hands and arm against his chest, like inside his thing. So he'll warm it up and at least be able to move it so that he knows that it's still alive. Okay. Beck says, and I pulled the gloves off, but I'd never had that kind of force of wind and cold coming at me. And you can feel when it hit that little bit of my arm now, which doesn't have all that extra glove stuff on. I mean, you could just feel it crawling up your arm. It's like you've taken the thing and you were freezing it and it was just moving up inch by inch all of a sudden. And I wasn't smart enough to take the glove and clip it on. And I lost the grip and it went instantly out of space. (gasps) And you went, pow, it's gone. His glove is gone. Mm hmm. Oh, no. So at this time in that huddle, Mike is able to radio camp four and he's like, hey, can you guys flash your lights, flash a bunch of lights at us so we can see where you are Mm -hmm. and we can try and make it to you. But it doesn't work. Right. And he's like, I know we're like 200, 300 meters away from this camp. So frustrating. They can't see anything. At some point in the middle of the night, Neil and another climber are like, "Okay, we're not going to stay. We're experienced. You guys stay here. Huddle up. We're going to go. We think it's here. We feel confident about this. We're going to go to camp four. We're going to get help. Send people back for you. Mm -hmm. I just had a flashback of being a kid and having a a winter coat with with the gloves, the mittens clipped to it. (laughs) Clipped to it, yeah. Uh When I was little. (laughs) So you don't lose them. Yeah. Did you have those? I did. I don't remember having clippy ones, no. Oh, yeah. I do remember having a lot of mittens. Yeah. Well, probably because you'd always lose one, so you had more. (laughs) Definitely. Well, and then in Georgia, you don't really have... Like super heavy winter coats. Oh, but we do. Oklahoma, woo, got cold. Yeah, I I went there that one time. It was it was that was awful. <laughs> yeah, it's really cold. <laughs> anyway, um, sorry. All right. So Mike had tried to go with them uh, when they were going back to Camp Four to get help, but he had both Beck and Yasuko because it's not like Neil's going to take Yasuko with him. She's in getting worse. Mm-hmm. Like she's kind of losing consciousness a little bit. It's not good. She'd already fallen over twice when they were just moving around trying to find places. Um, She was at this point unable to move. And so they had also at that point found the three people in Scott Fisher's group. And those people, you know, like Charlotte, Sandy, and one other guy, I cannot remember his name, I think Tim. Um, and those folks were having also issues and they couldn't keep up with Neil and this other climber. So at this point, Beck tells Mike, listen, I know you wanted to go with him, like go with them, bring someone back mm-hmm. because, you know, like, we need as much help as possible. Mike says, really, it's the only choice if we're going to survive. I need to go and try and find Camp 4 and send back help because this group of three of the Scott Fisher group and Beck and Yusuko were going nowhere. So I said to whoever it was, and I very, very clearly remember saying to Beck twice, stay here, do not move, and I'll go get some help. 
And I said that to someone else, too. I said it three times and off I went. So actually, Mike makes it. Neil and well, the other I'm guy. like, the people that you're reading their quotes, I'm like, OK, these are the people who lived. <laughs> You know, so I'm like, who didn't from this? Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, it's true. I mean, like if I'm reading a quote, obviously, obviously they made it. So uh, Mike makes it to the camp mm-hmm. and he's able to tell them. So Neil and the other guy and Mike, they're all there. He says they're 300 to 400 meters up from the camp back in Yusuko, all these people. And so he says, you got to send Sherpas to go get them. Um, if they don't go now, Beck and Yusuko are going to die. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah. When Neil had gotten there, he was a little bit earlier than Mike. He told Anatoly where to find everybody. And so Anatoly actually sets out, but he ends up coming back kind of quickly because he can't find what they're talking about. And uh, Lene or Lenny Gamelgard, who was who actually had come back with Neil as well, I'm sorry, explains again, like this is where they are. He heads out again. In one trip, he's able to bring back Sandy and then Charlotte. But by the that third time, because he's gone out once, twice, third time, he just can't. He can't yeah. do it anymore. And so he's not able to make it back for Beck and Yasuko. So they're out in the storm, the two of them by themselves. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Beck says, your whole clothes fill up with the driven snow and the ice that's coming at you. You don't even realize it so much at the time because everything is just nonstop cold and misery. But it's driving inside through the seams of your zippers that are not all the way down and closed. And it's coming in and it's refreezing and holding there. Even the stuff right up against your chest is frozen. And so my clothes got to the point where they were just a carapace of ice on the outside. I eventually went unconscious. But up to the last part, when I was sliding under, I was still thrashing around trying to generate heat. And I think Yasuko was next to me. And I was pretty much trying to shove her and pummel her and try to keep it going. And at some point in there, though, I went almost into a dreamlike sense of floating across. And it was like I thought I was being carried. And I had this sense of just gently moving away. And at that point, I wasn't cold, but I wasn't giving up. I was becoming unaware. So, yeah, Makalu, who's up there with Scott... Mm-hmm. Um, those two Sherpas had actually left them because they needed more help. And they're like, you stay here with him. We're going to go down. We're going to come back. We'll get more help. And Makalu and Beck are actually doing the same thing. They're like shaking themselves kind of violently. Mm-hmm. Makalu, I kind of, I like this part of the story because he he's like, you know, I was trying to keep awake. And so what I did was I was shouting at myself, Makalu, don't go to sleep. <laughs> Makalu, you're not going to die. Like it was just, he was great. And he said he was screaming so loud that it was like vibrating his body. Uh-huh. Um, and then he starts thinking of disco songs and he was like dancing to disco songs. And I head. love that so yes. much. Yeah. Yeah. It was cute. Music can really keep you going sometimes, yes. especially if you can find something that has like a resonates with you. Or, yeah. yeah. Or has like a beat to it. Yes. Yeah. So all this time... Like Eye of the Tiger? This, I mean, honestly. So all this time, Rob Hall and Doug Hansen are still at the summit. No. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah. Guy Cutter, the next morning, 4.43 a.m., Rob Hall radios to Guy Cutter, who's down at base camp. He said, to think that Rob had gotten that far down but wasn't in a position to get up and move to get himself on the route on the way down was very sobering. The implications of being up there and not moving are not great, but we still had hope. Rob was talking. He was able to use his radio. There was the potential of rescue getting up to him. So what had happened is that Rob had gotten down from the summit top Mm -hmm. and made it to the Hillary step. And they asked him, how's Doug? And he says, Doug's not with us anymore. Doug's not here. And that was it. Doug obviously hadn't made it down to that position with Rob, 
but we got no information from Rob about that. He didn't say anything about what had happened. Mm. So the sun rises May 11th. The two rescuers end up finding Beck and Yasuko. They leave Camp 4. They go up. They find them, but neither one is moving. They're both laying down in the snow and they're not moving. And so they're like, okay, they're dead. And the conditions are still rough. It's not like it's a clear sunny morning. It's Mm -hmm. like the sun is up, but the blizzard is still happening. And so they make the decision like it's too much effort to pull them down. We're going to leave them here. We'll send people up later. Oh, no. And Neil said, in the first light of the morning, I remember lurching up and just trying to focus as hard as I could and figure out what to do next. I remember looking over to Tim and saying, Tim, is everyone back? And Tim was the one who then said that Beck or somebody had stood up into the air and then just fallen over and that Yasuko was unconscious, that she was dead. I believe he used the word dead. That was a moment that it really hit me, that the bridge that I thought I had crossed, this baton to not just Anatoly as a responsibility to him, but to the general camp for people, something had gone awry. And Tim, whose information I knew was vague, we were all vague about things, but he was very, very certain. I asked him several times that this woman, Yasuko, was dead and that Beck had fallen off and he didn't know where Beck was anymore. So it's like kind of weird. Like there's a couple different accounts where they're like, they found Beck, his cheek was touching the snow and he looked dead. And then there's this other account of like, he jumped off the side of the mountain, hmm. right? Which obviously he didn't do, but I don't know exactly. I think what they were trying to say is that he was so hypothermic and so disoriented that they weren't going to be able to save him anyway. Like, even if they did take him back to camp, he was going to die. And were people's accounts a little bit weird because they were all disoriented? And I think 100 percent that. Yeah, I feel like if people are, you know, hallucinating, hypothermic, whatever. Yeah, it's you're going to get a lot of stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah different stories. Yeah. John said, I do remember we were all in the tent. There was at least John Krakauer, Stu, Mike, myself, Frank Fishbeck. And when Stu came back to tell us that he had found Beck and Yasuko, he got as close to possible to Yasuko. He'd cracked a carapace of snow and ice off her face to see her just moving purposelessly. She wasn't able to move much and she was deeply unconscious. So it's like, I feel like maybe she was was not not yet dead, but unconscious in a coma Uh possibly yeah yeah so john goes on he says he so he came back with the sherpa and the decision was whether we should bring them back to the tents and at that stage there was a small amount of discussion but i think i said it first i'm not sure i said this is crazy we'll be hauling them back into about 80 100 mile hour per hour gusts no one was strong enough to carry them we would be dragging them over rocks about 300 meters rocks and rubble on the moraine and to me it seemed a pointless exercise at that stage we weren't sure we would survive so the decision was made to leave them there so mid-morning may 11th the mountain madness team decides they're going to leave camp four and head down but the adventure consultants team stays back at camp four so mountain madness is going down to camp three Mm -hmm. adventure consultants staying at camp four and their leader right Mm-hmm. What's up? No, I'm trying to figure out who all is still up on the top. Yeah. So um, I know the Doug, the mailman, is stuck at the very top. Yeah. Like he didn't make it at all. He didn't make it at all. Rob, Rob. is at Hillary Step. Uh, then there's uh, Makalu yes. and Scott are up there. And then Yasuko and Beck are a little bit further up from Camp 4. And okay. Yeah. And everybody else already come down. So there's six, wait, six people. Six people. Okay. Yeah. 
so yeah, because Rob is up there. That's their leader. So they're like, we're going to stay here because they also thought that there were going to be a couple Sherpas who were going up to rescue Rob. Like they had already gone up to rescue Rob. So they were like, we're going to stay here till Rob gets here. Uh, their only uh, guide, Mike Grom, he's unconscious. Oh no. He's in a tent, unconscious. So they're like, we're going to stay another night because our only guide <laughs> is out. Not available right now. Unconscious, so, like they just said he was. I don't know if he was sleeping. He was just like exhausted, or if he was like just fully unconscious from some kind of issue. I'm oh not sure. Gosh. They just said not able to wake him up. Okay. So, like I said, those two Sherpas are going to go to do the rescue for Rob. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Later that day, Mountain Madness arrives at Camp Three, and this is where they meet the rest of the IMAX documentary climbers and some other climbers, including David uh, Briashears, who's that guy who did this film that mm-hmm. I watched and read a lot about uh, neil said when we walked into camp three which at this point almost seems like the lowlands even though it's still at twenty four thousand feet we come into the tents that are there and jim williams and david bria shares uh were there and there was hot tea for us and some comforting words although it was very solemn it was hard to explain there was no elation in me about making it to this point i felt like we had really really lost we had gone up with a certain number of people and we'd come back just a mess Scott wasn't there. I knew that Rob's team was even more of a mess. It wasn't clear to me exactly what was going on, but I knew it was really bad. So at 3 p.m. that day, the Sherpa rescue attempt for Rob just can't make it to where he is. They're actually 100 meters below where he was, but they couldn't get up the ridge. It was too windy. The weather was too bad. And so at this point, they radio Rob and they tell him, we can't make it to you. Mm -hmm. And Rob can't. He just can't go on. He's exhausted. He's like hypothermic, all of those things. And so Guy, the guy at the base camp guy, told Rob that they would try again the next day. It's almost like they didn't want to say it. And so yeah. he's like, hey, this is tomorrow morning at 930. We're going to be up there. It's going to be better weather. We're going to come get you. Yeah. And he's like, cool. Sounds good. At, in the video, I didn't include it in this part of the story. You can go and it's just super sad. Uh, they actually call his wife. Oh, no. And they have like a last conversation. Like Like Rob and his wife? Rob and his wife. So she calls in on the sat phone because she knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. She calls in on the sat phone. They take the the radio and they hold the sat phone to the radio and then they talk to each other. And he's he said right before he got on the phone with his wife, he's like, let me put a little snow in my mouth and moisten my mouth. Basically, he was trying to sound normal to her. Mm -hmm. But, you know, obviously not. Not. Yeah. And. At the point where they said Beck had died, someone radioed and they actually called his wife, Peach, in the States and told her that he died. Oh, no. On Mount Everest. So just really sad stories. Actually, when they radioed up to Rob, he had said, like, sounds great. I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, the guys tomorrow morning. Make Mm -hmm. sure they bring a lot of tea with them. Oh. I did say the story is I wanted to talk about Beck Weathers because it's insane. Uh, So let's get back to him. He's presumed dead. At the very least, unsavable, mm-hmm. as far as we can tell. Uh, Beck actually wakes up the next day. He's essentially been in a coma for a minute, but he wakes up <laughs> for a minute. <laughs> he wakes up and he thinks he's at home in his bed. He feels no pain. He's very comfy. Oh, he's like warm. Right? Hypothermia is like a weird thing. It's, it's a weird super thing. weird. It's yeah. like not maybe not so bad. It's like a 
maybe a nice way to go. I don't know. Of all the, I mean, like, there's a lot of pain prior to that, but like, once the pain goes away, once your body, yeah, once mm-hmm. your mind does that thing, that switch, the switch, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's like, oh, weird. <laughs> but then his eyes adjust and he realizes, oh no, I'm still on this mountain. Um, he said that he was hallucinating a lot. He saw his family actually standing in front of him oh, and yeah. he knew he had to get up and get moving, that nobody was coming for him. He was basically like, I'm not one of the big wigs. No one cares about me. Like, I got to get up and go. No one's coming. Oh man! So he did. Gets up. And at this point, he's like, I don't feel any pain. He's not able to see very well. He still has the depth perception issue. Somehow, though, he stumbles down like to the camp. He gets to the camp. <laughs> and they're like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he looks rough. Right. And He's, I'm sure they're all like, yeah, we were totally about to come back up and get you. It's all good. <laughs> um, he says, and when I see the tents that for the first time in that journey across there that I realized I am not going to die. There is the tent. There is the camp. What I was trying to get to is right in front of me. And at that point, I knew I wasn't going to have to sit down. I wasn't going to have to watch that sun disappear below the horizon and just accept it. There was no doubt in my mind that I was going to get off this mountain in one piece, maybe not in a good piece, but I was going to get off the mountain. And they got me into Scott's tent, into two sleeping bags and some hot water bottles to try warm me up a a little bit. And after they had done what they could do practically, then I was there in the tent for the rest of the night alone. They left him in the tent alone. They're like, you just need to warm up a little bit. (laughs) BRB. BRB. Uh, someone described they're his... all outside like, oh my God, we thought he was dead. <laughs> right. All he hears is whispering. <laughs> just a lot of... <laughs> so uh, they're like, it's the wind. Don't worry about it. Uh, yeah, he... Uh, they said that his nose was like porcelain and like the piece of his cheek uh-huh. and his hand like porcelain. Ew. Yeah, not good. Later that afternoon, the Sherpas come back for Makalu and Scott. Uh-huh. were just below the balcony. That's where they were waiting, right, right where Beck was waiting for Rob all that time, right? They're uh-huh. like at that point. Um, the Sherpas help Makalu down. And while they're doing this and trying to get him ready to get down, you know, they're giving him like some tea. They're trying to help him warm up so they can mm-hmm. get moving. Um, they're attempting CPR on Scott, but it's unsuccessful. Oh. Mm-hmm. On May 12th, uh, Mike has decently recovered. So he woke up. Um, he's recovered to some extent, um, and he can start the descent with, with what's left of his team. But nobody told him that Beck had made it back to the camp. Ugh. I don't know. How did that happen? I have no idea Ugh. how this happens. In fact, Mike starts gathering every everybody up. and He's checking tents and he comes across this tent. The flaps of the tent are, are, tent are open. He sees feet sticking out like boots. Uh-huh. Um, someone had placed a sleeping bag over the face of the person who was in the tent. And Mike assumed that it was someone who had died. And so he didn't check the face. He's like, I've seen a lot of dead bodies. I don't need to see this dead body. Because uh-huh. it's not a zipped up tent. No one cares. What? Right? So Beck actually remembers that earlier in the night, he had shouted. He was He really needed something to drink. Uh-huh. And he shouted as much as he could. And somebody came over, he says, either a Sherpa or somebody came over with a drink and then just stared at him. And they stared at each other. And then that person left. And then put a sleeping bag over his head. <laughs> I'm annoyed. It was like, and Beck felt like the way he describes it, he's like, you know, I had the air of death. And maybe that scared people off. They thought he was going to die anyway. 
Oh, boy. Like, he was so far gone. So they didn't take him? So the rest of Beck's group uh, went ahead without him. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Because they thought he was a dead body. So he's left for dead again. Again? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it just so happens, Kismet, there's another group there at Camp 4 that had someone that Beck actually knew from that summit he did in Antarctica. Uh, yeah, and there were two of them, and they were like, "Let's get, let you're here, holy shit! Like, have some tea. Let's get going. We need to get started for Camp Three. So it was later in the day that the folks left in Beck's group. They were talking about him having died. Like they, you know, John Stu, all those guys. They were like talking about how sad it is. How sad it is, you know. And then this other guy was like, "He didn't die. He was at the camp." And they're like, "What? Oh my god!" <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, he's right there." And they turn around. And there he is coming down, you know, like climbing, mostly blind, mostly blind, porcelain hand, nose, nose cheek, cheek, bad news. Uh, and they're like, wow. OK. <laughs> All right. That guy has a resolve. Yeah. He's got uh, like he's got like nine lives right there. Right. Uh, the adventure consultants tour then makes it to camp two which at that point had been turned into a makeshift hospital. Obviously, everybody knows there's this massive disaster. All mm -hmm. these people are missing. Mm -hmm. Beck says, when I get into the Camp 2 hospital, our mess tent, which was what it used to be, I'm stripped completely naked and I'm lying on the ground and I have an IV put into my arm and we're getting lukewarm water to try and thaw my hands out. As you're getting laid out and people are just kind of wandering around you, you're like a piece of meat in the middle of the floor. And I bet warming up is very painful. Oh, guaranteed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You get a chance, really, for the first time to see your flesh exposed as opposed to having it partially covered. For instance, my left hand I'd not seen until we got down there. And I really, of course, had no idea what my face looked like, which is just as well. But you do <laughs> but you do get a chance to see now for the first time, really in a leisurely way, to stare at your right hand. And there's a line of demarcation and it's absolutely gray and it doesn't look like anything alive. And you know that at the very least, most of it's going away. Oh. You don't know that you're going to lose the whole thing. And that was misleading. I had no signs of classical swollen hands, blisters, all of the things you see in a textbook because my hand was so frozen that you couldn't have any of that happen. You just have to have blood supply for those changes to occur. And I think it fooled everybody. It fooled the folks who were in the tent. It fooled the folks who helped me out in Kathmandu. And when I got back, it fooled hand surgeons that I saw because I was still able to move my hands because your hands are driven by the muscles in your forearms, not in your hands. And even though they were dead, I had little puppets. They were still sliding and gliding and moving. And I just didn't realize they were completely gone. Both hands? Mm-hmm. Oh, because I thought he only lost the glove on the one. I guess he had been exposed enough. It's just too long. It's too long. I'll I'll tell you all the things that okay he ends up losing. I'm like having like a Oprah flashback moment, right. yeah. like trying to recall going back to you know 20 years, right? Yeah. So Makalu made it down as well, and actually he was carried by a succession of like 10 different Sherpas. They would like hand him off every 10 or 15 oh, steps. Yeah. Um, and then they eventually made some kind of like plastic boat and like drug him down. Yeah. They're <laughs> the like, hill. wow, he's really heavy. <laughs> they're like, we got we to do something else. Um, he said, after a while, we heard the helicopter coming. When the Sherpas heard the helicopter, they started dragging faster and it was getting very fast. It was kind of painful for me. And then they stopped <laughs> and asked me, Makalu, sir, are you OK? But I had the oxygen mask on my face. And so I just said, OK, OK. And they kept dragging me until we He's reached. like, not really. And they just keep going. <laughs> like, whatever. 
Then they kept dragging me until we reached the helicopter. Then the climbers from the American team and the other teams helped the Sherpas to lift me up and get me into the helicopter. At around the altitude of 6,000 meters, the helicopter flew up. I thought everything should be okay and we would get to Kathmandu soon. So just a little side note. This is the highest elevation helicopter rescue ever. Oh, yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. After a little while, the helicopter stopped at the base camp and they took me out of the helicopter. I didn't understand why, but I thought it's okay. I could see my fellow climbers in base camp. Two or three of the Taiwanese climbers came over to me. When they saw me like that, they put their arms around me and everybody cried. I said, it's okay. I'm still alive. I'm still alive. After a few minutes, the helicopter came back to the base camp and they put me into the helicopter again. There was an American in the helicopter, Beck Weathers. So we both sat in the helicopter. We closed the door and the helicopter left from base camp and we got to Kathmandu in less than one hour. Wow. Love that. I love that. They just like, yeah, show up together in the helicopter. Aww. They were the ones with the worst Injuries? frostbite. Yeah. Okay. They both lost their noses. Uh -huh. um, Makalu lost all of his fingers and I think a number of his toes. Mm. So... Guy Cutter remembers seeing everyone who made it back to base camp and how transformative the whole situation was for like everybody. Mm -hmm. What we experienced there, and I think this is what mountaineering p provides in general, is it polarizes life. Here we were. We were involved in the situation that had everything. There was tragedy. There was death. You know, it was a disaster. But at the same time, some good things came out of it. It showed the strength of humans and the way they can support each other and the amount of care that was there from one person to another to risk their own lives and their own expeditions to go and assist other people and help them through those dreadful times. Beck ended up losing his right forearm and hand. His left hand was actually they were able to like fashion this kind of like mitt mm -hmm. situation. And um, he has dexterity. So he has kind of like, it's almost like a, like three kind of large fingers. One mm -hmm. of them acts like a thumb so he can grip with it. Uh, so they didn't cut off his hand. Like his hand was saved, but it just doesn't work. The left hand. The he left can, hand. He can use it. Yeah. They actually were able to, I guess, fix some nerves and muscles and whatnot. Oh, that's cool. Um, but yeah, his right hand is, and forearm is gone. Right. And like you mentioned, he lost his nose, uh, but uh -huh. they were able to grow a new one in his forehead and reattach a, yeah. a nose. Yeah. Yeah. And it reminded me of that girl that we talked about on the raccoon episode. Mm -hmm. They grew the ear out of her arm, right? Is that what it was? Uh, yeah, something like that. Um, and then he also had lost part of his cheek, but that was, you know, they just took some skin from, I, I assume, someplace else. Yeah. And put it there. Um, Beck said that prior to this disaster, like I mentioned, he and his wife were on the verge of divorce because of all this adventuring and absenteeism from his family. And going through this really put it in perspective for him. When he finally came to write his story, simply telling the world about how he survived was not enough. He and Peach decided to write about how they put their life back together, something climbing had almost destroyed. For us, the rationale to do this was not to cover the mountain story, but the drives which put you there, the price you pay in terms of friendships. Uh, relationships. Having had the experience of dying once, it's fine. It's doable. But you don't pay the big price. <laughs> Knowing that stripped me of a lot of rationalisms, rationalizations and denial. He also said he's no longer plagued by depression. And although he misses climbing, he feels liberated. The sense of having to prove myself externally has simply gone. I don't think about that the things in that way anymore. And it has been a huge relief. I think that happens to most people. It just often happens a lot later. It seems trite to say that I live each day as if it was my last, that the colors are brighter, the sense of the wind in your face is more intense, but it's true, at least for a good part of every day, and that's an exquisite pleasure. So Beck wrote a book, Left for Dead, mm -hmm. um, and twice. it's published by, twice. <laughs> it's published by a company called Little Brown. 
So the people who died, Andrew Harold Harris, he was a guide from New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Um, It's unknown what happened to him. They presume that he fell. Uh, Doug Hansen uh, from the United States also. He was up at the very top. Up at the very, Yeah. yeah. These are all from the Adventure Consultants group. Rob Hall, who was the expedition leader, and Yasuko Namba, who was the second female from Japan mm-hmm. to climb Mount Everest to summit. She also passed away. And then from Mountain Madness, Scott Fisher, who was the expedition leader, um, he died from exposure. And then those three folks from India that I mentioned earlier and that we didn't talk about, they were on the other side, the other ridge, the Northeast Ridge. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then one guy from Taiwan. Yeah. Was, and they yeah. didn't I they didn't put him on this list, I think, because he He died before all the all stuff. the summiting stuff. But yeah. still I mean same honestly, trip. Same trip. Yeah. Yeah. Because they all of these folks died as a result of the storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he died as a result of an, an accident. I think that's why maybe they didn't keep it in there. But yeah, no. Chen Chen Yu Nan, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's the story. Oh my of... gosh. So did they get everybody down? Because I remember <laughs> reading something about and I don't remember if it was there, but how they had to leave people. So, yeah, people have been left. Oh, and, you know, I was going to include this in here and I thought, man, this is kind of a long story. I don't want to like. But then I'm asking all the questions. <laughs> I'm like, tell me more, Megan. <clears throat> I'm like, you know, there's. Yeah. So there are people up on Everest that they just can't get to. And they're, they're actually used as um, creepily as markers for points Ew. on your ascension. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They just can't get them down. Mm-mm. Are they like stuck? I, I don't know if they're stuck. Or if they've been up there so long that at this point. But I do know that at the bottom of Everest, like at base camp, there are these memorials, like rock memorials for all the people who've who've died on Everest. Did you tell us how many? Do you know? Did you find mm, it? You know, I thought I included it in here, but I don't think I did. I definitely read about it, but I don't know if I hold on one second. Let me look it up. More than 300 people are thought to have died on Everest, with around 200 bodies remaining on the mountaintop because it's too difficult to recover them. So, wow. Yeah. And I'm assuming they're saying like more than 300 because you don't, I mean, earlier expeditions, maybe. Yeah. You have no idea. You wouldn't know yeah. if it wasn't documented. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of people. So I do have an organization to support. All right. And I couldn't remember if this is the same organization I chose when we talked about the other summiting accident um, that was on the Mummery Spine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was like, this is still, even if it is, it's still a good organization. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. We double support it. <laughs> what? Uh, so this is the American Himalayan Foundation. It's at www.himalayan-foundation.org. They were founded in 1981 by a small group of climbers who were drawn to Nepal for the mountains, but returned again and again for the people. They wanted to respond to the pressing problems of this magnificent but very poor part of the world, where many still struggle with health care or education. Thousands of young girls live in danger of being trafficked, and traditional ways of life are fast disappearing. AHF exists to bring positive, tangible change to people's lives. And I'm just going to read this quote from Jimmy Carter. President Jimmy Carter. I don't believe any non-governmental organization could possibly do as much with as little contribution as the American Himalayan Foundation. They are extremely efficient. There is no bureaucracy. There is no waste. And the most important thing is they know the people there and have known them for decades. So there is an absolute perfect efficiency in making the most out of every dollar contributed. So right there. I mean, that's what you want. If Jimmy Carter said it. Done. Yeah. He is a good Samaritan, that right? guy. Yeah. That's the truth. So, yeah, that is uh, the story of the 1996 
Mount Everest disaster. Wow, thanks. I never, I don't think I've watched any of the movies or documentaries about it. Man, that that documentary is really good. Okay. It's good because it has interviews from everybody, you know. Yeah. And uh, you can actually read a, a transcript of it, which helped me with the quotes. <laughs> right. I was like trying to write stuff down and then uh, Frontline, I mean, Frontline, it has an interactive map, like all this stuff. It's like a lot of information. So. Yeah. I'm going to check it out. I mean, it's a very well documented story. So Right. Yeah. So, uh, Jen, what would you put in your emergency preparedness kit for your trip to Mount Everest? So I know this is this happened before smartphones and amazing technology. Any phones? Yeah. I, I don't know. Sure. 90, I mean, I think there were some cell phones. Back 96. Then. I feel like you got that car phone. Definitely. There was the a car giant phone. one. Yeah, yeah. 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 My grandparents had one of those. It's pretty great. Yeah. It's from like Radio Shack. <laughs> yes. That's great. Anyway, the we're talking now. What would I put? Yeah. And I'm thinking what Beck needed yes. was just something to show, and maybe other people too, that when the rescuers got there or whoever, they would show that they're still alive. Right. So people would know like, Don't. I can't, I'm incapacitated. I'm passed out. I'm in a mini coma, mm-hmm. but I'm still alive. Mm-hmm. Please take me with you. Yeah. Right. Help, just something. Help me out. Help me out. And so I'm wondering like, I mean, nowadays we all have smartwatches, mm-hmm. smartphones. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how a Fitbit would do up there <laughs> in that kind of extreme a f- fitness tracker. Some sort of smart device, mm-hmm. maybe possibly with Siri on it. <laughs> so before you pass out, you just like, hey, Siri, mm-hmm. make sure if people come. Can you tell them I'm still alive? It's all good. It's all good. Yeah. Something. Yeah. So there's some sort of an announcement. Possibly they can check your your fitness your vitals or yeah (laughs) your heart is still pumping yes even if it's only like 20 beats a minute at least it's something it's something just take me down the mountain yes it's true because yeah he was just kind of left just mistakenly a couple times i feel like if he'd had that on when mike came in to get everybody together he'd been like oh cool you're good right let me get you up instead of just assuming he was a dead body yeah right hopefully Mm -hmm. he would wear it on his left are because sounds like the right one was not, not doing so doing good. Great, yeah, yeah. The the watch might have been like, nope, he's dead. <laughs> right, <laughs> not this arm. I mean, maybe you just want to like uh, inside, like directly next to your heart. Yeah, something. something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm going to say some sort of sign of life fitness device, mm-hmm. possibly like with a Siri attached to speak for you. Nice, I like that. Yeah. I don't know how you're going to sum that up to an we'll episode. Just, yeah, we'll just say a uh, uh, extreme climate fitness tracker. Yes, there you go. There you go. With Siri. Which I'm pretty sure they exist. A guaranteed. It just, we won't know because we're not out. Yeah, we're that. not the people out there trying to. Yeah. Yeah. Next, just, next time I go to the continent, I'll stop by an REI. I'll be like, do you guys have an extreme winter fitness tracker to make sure everybody knows I'm alive with Siri? Even though I'm never. Never going to do that. Never going to do that. Just want to know if it's there. But I just want to know if it exists because <laughs> I have a podcast and we talk about it. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So cool. yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Thanks for that story, Megan. That was that was very sad. It Yeah, it's a very sad story. Yeah, it's really sad. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm happy. I'm happy that Beck made it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so are know. those people still stuck up there or were they able to get I think down? that some of them were brought down. OK, yeah. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I feel like I read that Rob was brought down okay. eventually. Yeah. But I yeah, don't think cause... they ever found Doug or the other guy that fell off that wasn't really in the story so much. The New but... Zealand. Mm-hmm. Man, you know, because if that's my partner or spouse or whatever, 
I would definitely want to have them back. Mm-hmm. Then thinking of them just on a mountain as a place marker. Yeah. I don't like that. No, I don't like that either. I, I do know that people will sometimes pose with a, I don't know, that just feels uncomfortable to me. Yeah, I don't like that at all. But somebody tell us what you think. Yeah. Maybe you know people who have done this and they have a different, you know. Perspective. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, alpinists, people who do these like extreme mountain climbs, that's, I think, a whole nother level of uh, physical and mental something. You know, they're they're just taking it to a level that I don't think I would ever get to. A whole nother level. Yep. Mm-hmm. For sure. I don't think my mind could expand like that. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, hope you guys enjoy that story and we'll be back uh, next week with another one. Yep. All cool. Right. You're Gonna Die Out There is produced by us, Jan and Megan, and edited by Jonathan Pillsbury. We'd love it if you can leave us a five-star iTunes review on Apple Podcasts. You can support us by following on Instagram or Twitter, listening and subscribing wherever you get podcasts or becoming a patron. Check out more on our website at you'regonnadieoutthere.com where you can see our awesome eco-friendly sponsors and Nature Nerd Artisans page. If you'd like to send us your own stories or episode ideas, you can submit them through our contact form on the website or to our email, you'regonnadieoutthere at gmail.com. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye. So when we went to Grand Canyon West, just a little side story, uh-huh. um, we went on that uh, skywalk. Yeah. You ever heard it? Yeah. It's like yeah. glass. Yeah. I have an awful fear of heights and it's like frosted glass, but we paid like $23 to walk on. And I was like, well, I and also... And the money goes straight to the tribe. Yes. So I feel like I would pay it even if I wasn't going to go this on This is it. true. So, but I was just kind of like... I, I guess I'm going to do this. You know, they give you those slippers, the like the covers for your shoes. Uh-huh. And I just kept thinking about how like, wow, there's just a railing and a piece of glass like this is not OK. Uh-huh. And yeah, I tried to get off there as quickly as possible. And there was a there was like a kind of line building up, you know, uh-huh. and uh, I had to walk in the middle of the where the clear glass was and I could feel my knees like buckling underneath and I was just like Jesus this is a tourist attraction <laughs> that's com- I mean hopefully completely sa- it seemed completely safe yeah I mean there's children there and I was like I'm gonna pass out like I gotta get off I think I, I'm I'm afraid of heights to an extent but I could do that oh I, I felt like I might actually clutch on to a stranger at some point <laughs> it was awful I was like why did you do this why did you do this to yourself to support the yeah. Well, and I thought, just give them the money. Like, yeah, exactly. Just don't go on the skywalk. I got off as quickly as possible. Well, I'm glad you went because I got a cool T-shirt out that's of it, true. which I'm wearing today. And that's the um, Hula Lapai mm-hmm. tribe, right? Yeah. Yeah. We talked about it. Anyway. It's pretty sweet.